All right. Here's the question we're analyzing tonight. If, if the old Earth creationists are correct and the Earth is, in fact, billions of years old, what does that mean for us? And some things to point out. The reason we raise this question is because there are some common misconceptions among Christians. Because they've been raised in a young earth mode most of their life, the church adopted that for a long time, and doesn't want to give it up. It's very stubbornly holding on in a lot of places. People have misconceptions that even if the earth is found to be billions of years old, and even if old earth creationist view are accepted, they still feel like, well, that means that we're going to be evolutionist. We want to kind of distinguish that tonight before we go forward. Okay. So our topic is, what if the universe really is billions of years old? What flows from that? Okay. Go to the next slide if you could. This is Romans 1, 18 through 20. Listen to this verse. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. That wickedness and godlessness will be revealed and taken care of on earth because everyone knows who God is. That's what it's saying. How does everyone know who God is? Here's the key. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Kind of a profound statement, but what Paul is communicating is men should know who God is and what he's all about and can actually glean his characteristics from the creation that's around us. We know that anthropologists tell us that if you just put a bunch of humans together, they'll immediately just create a religion. So people around the world think that all religions just happen because people are looking for answers. And because they don't understand what's going on, they make up religions, right? Isn't that what you heard in school? That's what we're taught? That if you have just a bunch of Aborigines who've never seen anybody and they're living on an island somewhere called Australia, they'll just make up a religion. Why? Because they don't understand the world around them, so they have to make up something bigger than them. Okay, that's not a bad answer for someone to have gleaned from some research on anthropology, but what about this answer that Paul gives us? The reason that we make up religions, the reason that we search for God is because in every one of us, the imprint of God is already there. And when we look outside at the world around us, we immediately are struck by the fact that someone must have created this. And Paul tells us that we are without excuse because we know, as we look around the world, that someone must have made this. Okay? Go to the next slide if you could. Here's another way of looking at it in Psalms. This is how it's stated in Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare. The heavens speak the glory of God. Okay? You guys are used to singing it in a song probably, right? The heavens declare. Okay, think about the words you're singing. I know, you're usually raising your hand just staring at the screen, but think about the words for a second. The heavens declare. They testify. The skies proclaim. Another word of speaking. These are speaking words. Or the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Third time that it's saying that it's literally talking to us. Pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Can we find any more words in there that have to do with speech, voice, knowledge, language? In other words, make it short, the heavens tell us who God is. They tell us what he's about. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words 
to the end of the world. This is not just a small analogy, by the way. The psalmist is, I, I don't think they could use more words to tell us that it is speaking, teaching, talking, writing, any, any of those words, it's communicating to us who God is. The important point I'm trying to make here is there is a revelation in nature, okay? We have the Bible, it's very detailed. I'm not gonna tell you that nature is as detailed as this book. This is God's word, it's very detailed. But the psalmist and Paul tell us that the heavens declare the same God. So therefore, he must be revealed in both revelations consistently. Go to the next slide. Consistency is point number one. If you take an old earth view, there is a consistency between God's word and the revelation. By the way, young earth creationists claim the same thing. They just can't back it up, it seems. That's what we found in the debate. They say that science and the Bible should be consistent, but then they deny everything science discovers. If we take a view of God, we think to ourselves, God created the universe, God created everything in it. The Bible tells us that the creation tells us who God is. The creation declares everything about him. So therefore, it should be consistent with his written word. God does not lie. He does not contradict himself. He does not break promises. He's consistent. So what we're doing in the next couple of weeks using an old earth model is if it's true that God is consistent with his word, and I want you to take God with a little g for a moment. Just take God with a little g. Let's pretend we don't know which God we're going to pick. I want you to assume that there is a, maybe a God, but we don't know his name. He has an asterisk right now. If there is a God, if he's the creator, and if he's going to write a book, doesn't it make sense that they should be somehow consistent? That if he's going to say, by the way, this is who I am, and he publishes a book, and then you go outside and you look at the world and you discover science and all of its attributes, I don't mean just looking at the great beautiful sky scene that you see up there, but I mean you can do astronomy, geology, biology, paleontology, anthropology, any apology, and you should find the same God if he's really behind it. Otherwise, maybe he's not behind it. And that's the journey that we go on when we discover that science and our religion are very consistent that there is a congruency between them. So number one, look for consistency. Look for something that doesn't contradict itself because I don't think God would do that. That's one of the things that bothers me about the young earth creationist view, by the way, is there's a lot of trickery that you have to believe. God had to put fossils in the ground or he had to somehow fit dinosaurs on the ark or they had to, the species had to disappear or we had to have, there's all these little inconsistencies. I don't think God does that. I think he's big enough to show us the majesty of his creation, okay? Let's go to the next slide. One other thing to look for as we walk through science, authentication. What is authentication? In a courtroom, authentication is the process when you actually have a book or a document in front of you that you have to actually authenticate the evidence to prove that something in a document establishes what you're saying. For example, you have a witness on the stand, you ask him a question, what's, what's that document you have? He says, this is a letter that I wrote to so-and-so. How do you know that that's a letter you wrote to so-and-so? Well, it's dated so-and-so this date and I signed it. Is that your signature? Yes, it is. Do you recognize your signature? Yes, I do. Okay. Now we can admit the document into evidence because someone has testified to its authenticity. We know that it's real. One of the things I want to encourage you to do when you're studying religion which I hope you've at least picked one, but when you're analyzing the claims of science and religion is to authenticate the Bible. How do you know it's accurate? How do you know that it hasn't been mistranslated? Because everybody tells you it has. How do you know that 
through all the years of copying it from different languages, we haven't lost meaning because everyone says that it has. How do you know that it's even written by the Spirit of God assisting men? How do you know that? I mean, it could just be another book, right? Because if you believe all the world's religions, everyone's got a book. What makes our book any different? Why is our book worth reading? And if you're going to be a compelling witness, you have to be able to answer that question. I've got you on the witness stand. Why read that book? You've got to give me an answer. You could say, what most people say, well, because my parents, you know, I grew up in the church. <laughs> that was the book we had. It's the only book I know. I didn't read any others. Not going to work. You could attack somebody else's book and say it's not true, but they'll just attack your book. So one of the things you need to be able to do is authenticate the Bible. Now, I believe, and I hope you will eventually, that the Bible self-authenticates itself. It does an amazing job. And by the way, it doesn't self-authenticate itself because of that one verse that says all scripture is profitable for blah, 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 which everybody cites. You can't use a book to authenticate itself unless there's something in it that points to an objective thing outside. If you were in my courtroom and I go, how do I know that's a real document? It's because there's a line down here that says, this is a real document. I'm like, that's not going to work. I need something more than that. Give me something objective and tangible. Like if the guy says, that's my signature, I could actually test it. Oh yeah, we'll sign this piece of paper and let's compare them. Okay, now I know it's your signature. So you need to look for authenticity in the Bible, not in terms of genuineness, but I mean in authenticating the book as it's legally described. Look at these things that you can do. In science, we're gonna authenticate it in a couple of ways. First of all, the Bible is unique in its descriptions of scientific events. I'm gonna read you a passage in a minute that I couldn't presume to write, I'm just gonna read it to you. But these are some examples of scientific events that are cited in the Bible that if you really believe the Hebrew people wrote this book thousands of years ago, there is no way these people could have known this. Gives evidence that there's something special about this book. So let me read you this excerpt first of all. This is Dr. Ross, who has kind of become a little bit of our hero for this series, writing about how he became a Christian. Dr. Ross is an astrophysicist, not a Christian at the time he started. In fact, his goal was to discredit all the world's religions because he thought religion was silly. He, being the big brain he was, knew that there was no God and knew that all the holy books that were written were just junk. And the way he was going to prove that they were junk was because any holy book that says it's written by a God should at least get something right about science since God supposedly created the world. So he thought, I'll start my journey. Here's his journey. And look for consistency and authenticity in the way that he writes. He's, he's using those tools to analyze which books are real. He says, millions of people through the ages have lived and died by their holy book. But if all the holy books came from the same source and said pretty much the same things as my teachers had suggested, why did the followers of each book criticize, condemn, and even kill the followers of the others? I began to suspect that all religions were humanly crafted fronts for people's psychological desire to dominate others. Here's a cynical view. In the physics of the universe, I saw harmony and consistency, perfection, freedom from contradiction, a pervading beauty, and an elegance of design. If God had spoken to humanity through a book of books, I reasoned God's communication would manifest the same qualities as did the cosmos that he had created. Science had convinced me that God, the God of the universe was neither capricious nor careless. People, on the other hand, even the most objective scientists I had met or read, were prone to at least some weaknesses and inconsistencies and were prone to make some errors, particularly the kind of errors arising from limited knowledge and understanding. And when it came to predicting the future, human imperfection and imprecision seemed abundant and, of course, obvious. 
On these premises, I began and ended my investigations of the world's sacred writings. While I found words of interest and beauty and truth in each one, each reflected the limited, now known to be erroneous, scientific knowledge of its time and place. Each one except one, the Bible. This particular book stood apart, and dramatically so. From the first page, I could see distinctions. The quantity and detail of scientific content far exceeded what I found in other books. To my surprise, the scientific method was as clearly evident in Genesis 1 as it is in modern research. Most impressive of all, the four initial conditions and the sequence of major creation events, not just one or two, but more than a dozen, all matched the established scientific record. As I pondered how this accuracy could have been achieved, even if the book were written much more recently than scholars estimated, I calculated the odds that the writer could have guessed the initial conditions and correctly sequenced the events, ignoring for the moment the question of how the writer could have even known what they were. And I discovered that the odds were utterly remote. Only one conclusion made sense to me. The conclusion that the creator of the universe had something to do with the words of Genesis 1. When I turned the page, I discovered more of the same documentary type communication. By the time I came to the flood chapters, I realized I could not dismiss this book so easily, at least not yet. I decided to spend an hour a day or more in addition to my homework time studying the Bible until I reached the end or found a provable error. 18 months later, I arrived at Revelation 22. No errors. During those months, I had read every page and failed to discover anything I could honestly label an error or contradiction. Some parts I had trouble understanding, but that didn't bother me. I understood enough, just as I understand enough of physics and astronomy to trust what I was learning in my university courses. I was so astonished by the Bible's consistent and frequent prediction of future scientific discoveries that I decided to attempt a probability calculation. My scratch paper scribbles showed me the numbers. Based on conservative estimates, for a small sampling of biblical predictions, the Bible matched the best established laws of physics in its degree of trustworthiness. I knew how implicitly I trusted the laws of physics for my own survival. How could I not trust in this book's message? And the one who sent it with such supernatural pre precision through human messengers. I can't write words like that. I can't experience what he must have experienced. I'm not as smart as he is to ever really be able to articulate what it must be like to walk through the Bible and learn that it's true in a way like that. Most of us have friends that think they're smart enough to do that. I doubt it. If you ever seen Dr. Ross in action and you see what kind of brain the guy has, there are few people in the universe gifted with this level of brain. There are some in the world today. Some of them are atheists. Some of them are Christians. But I dare say there's almost none among most of the critics we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis who can do the kind of analysis that he did. Look at the screen, some of the things that we're talking about. The Big Bang Theory, really articulated in the 70s, refined in the 80s, become almost scientific fact by the 90s. Most secular scientists today tell you it's just, there's just no way this is not true. We've proved it to almost the most minute degree beyond almost anything else. It's probably one of the best proven theories. It's still a theory, but it's one of the best proven theories so far in science. And yet if you read about it in the Bible, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 42.5, the Lord says the following. This is what Isaiah tells him. This is what God the Lord says, Isaiah writes. He who created the heavens and stretched them out. 
In 11 different places, the Bible talks about the stretching of the heavens with a Hebrew word that implies a continual stretching of the heavens once they're created. No one knew this. In 1950s, by the way, you know where the word Big Bang comes from? It comes from the critics in science, not, not the young earth creationists, but secular scientists who were trying to disprove the Big Bang theory. Because until 1950, the most prevalent theory was that the universe just existed as a static state. You've probably heard of the static state theory. We don't even talk about it anymore because it's been so disproven. But that the universe existed, it just, just was frozen. And here the Bible is disputing that thousands of years before saying, no, the heavens are continually being stretched. It's interesting that it describes the word created and then says stretched. The word for created, instantaneous creation. The word for stretched, continual stretching. It puts them side by side in the Hebrew to show you that Isaiah is supernaturally inspired to understand what God has done by creating the world through this thing. Now, some people, uh, I'll give you, don't believe in the Big Bang Theory and the young creationist model. If you've accepted that, that's okay. I'm not trying to rock your world too much. But I'm saying tonight, if it were true, the Bible's already predicted it thousands of years ahead of time. And the critics that will rip your Bible apart do believe it's true. Show them it's in there. They might not think, well, who cares? You probably wrote that last week. <laughs> but we know that the Bible's been untouched. I mean, most historians who are worth their salt know that the Bible's been translated accurately, even if they don't believe in its words. They know. I, mean, I think there's little doubt that the Bible's the most accurately translated book around. You know, most historians will tell you that, but they don't believe in it. The days of creation. You heard what Dr. Ross was talking about. Not whether it's six days or six billion years. What he was talking about was the order of creation. You know, it wasn't until the 1700s, 1800s, that we even started to grasp the concept that life evolved from the seas if it evolved at all. That concept that life began one place and started to move around, that there was an order to the way that it occurred. You heard that he said that not just one or two creation events, but that they were dozens of them in the correct order. The odds are astronomical that any people sitting in the desert, hanging out, could predict how life begins and put it in the right order. Again, I use that to say that's pretty self-authenticating. We get to go back to Isaiah and the water cycle. Isaiah 55 talks about the water cycle. We didn't discover that till thousands of years later. Isaiah describes it and uses it as a metaphor for what God is going to do in restoring his people. A lot of people think all of the science in the Bible is in Genesis. Once you get through there, you're safe. Actually, most of the science in the Bible is throughout the Old Testament and other places. And Isaiah is filled with predictions about science. One of them is the water cycle, the way it's described. Again, he calculates the odds in one of his books of what are the chances that some guy getting some prophetic message from God and proclaiming it to his people will make up an analogy about something that science won't discover for another two or 3,000 years. Did he just guess or did God tell him? You guys looking for it in Isaiah? Should be in Isaiah 55. In starting in eight, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, higher than your thoughts. I love that verse because, of course, everybody's standing around going, well, if there was a God, he would be like this. Really? <laughs> you, you have the power to tell us what God should be like? God is so much bigger than you if there was a God. I don't think he'd be like you. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields for the sower and bread for the eater goes out. He says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, 
To me, that's compelling. I won't say it's conclusive. You might need more evidence. But there are so many of these passages. When we did one of our series before on witnessing, we covered some of the predictions in the Bible about future events. Most of the predictions, the odds of it being correct, were something like one in 10 with 20 zeros after it because they were so completely out there that you could actually guess that from the time that it was being done. We can go back to some of those if you want. If you have questions about what self-authenticates the Bible, there's a list of like 15 or 20 prophecies that we usually use that are just fun to look at. Just read them, they're in the Bible. You know, it's like an exercise you can do on your own. Here, read this. It says that the following thing will happen, and that didn't happen for like another 400 years later, okay? And by the way, the best ones are the ones that don't happen in the Bible. You know, like it's like one thing to say, well, Isaiah predicted that Jesus would be born in like Bethlehem, you know, because of course your secular friends are going to say, well, that's because you wrote the book and you changed the ending to make the prophecies match. There's some ones where Isaiah predicts what's going to happen in 1948 when Israel's restored to the land. There's ones that like you just think like that's just impossible unless God has his hand on it. Okay, go to the next slide. Let's tackle some common questions if there is an old earth interpretation that tend to trick us up before we move on and study more things in the next couple weeks. Remember in our debate over young earth and old earth, one of the biggest issues that causes division in the church is if the earth has millions of years for each of those days and there was all this creation going on, that means that animals died and animals went extinct on that quote-unquote fifth day that lasted millions and millions of years. Young earth creationists think this is heresy because they believe all death entered into mankind and the plant kingdom and animal kingdom as a result of Adam's sin. So if you take a young earth view, what they're telling you is that from the time that God created the animals on the fifth day until Adam's sin, which we don't know how long that is, but let's just say it's like a month. I don't know how long is it? A year? We don't know how long Adam was in the garden before he screwed up. There was no death. There was no death because there was no sin, there was no death. Once there's sin, now there's death. That's the young earth view. The old earth view says, no, that's nonsense. There were millions of years of of animals being born and dying. Animals don't pay for man's sin. Man pays for man's sin. Animals don't have a soul. They are not capable of sinning. They're just creatures. The question is, did God create a cruel world that included suffering and death? Because the young earth creationists will always say, if you believe there was suffering and death when God created the world, then when God looked out at the world and said, it is good, what he was saying was suffering and death is good. Is that the kind of world we live in? Well, it seems like today it is. Does God create a suffering and evil world for us to live in? Is that what his intended creation was? I think it's a little bit of a red herring, but the answer is no. That's not what God intends for us. We're presuming too much, by the way, when you say that an animal feeds on another animal or just dies because of old age or something, that that's somehow suffering and death. I mean, that just happens every day, okay? But God did not intend for you to live in this world like this. That's the second question. Is Adam's sin responsible for all death? Well, an older creation is just going to say no. Death entered in through Adam for mankind, and Christ came to save mankind. Okay? I just want to make that clear because in the debate, that was a huge point where they basically called anybody who believed in an old earth view a heretic. This was the reason. I just want to clarify one last time. I think there's a very viable statement in the Bible, and Paul, when he talks about death entering through sin, he said it came to mankind. So I think it's very justifiable to believe that the Lord created an earth where animals could die. We've talked about some of the reasons animals die. What were some of those reasons? Well, one is so they could have food later. 
Okay, that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong right now. I don't think the Lord looks out and says, this world is evil, you're eating meat. But here's the point that you need to have. It's just, I think it's a red herring. We know that God has all sorts of purposes for us. For the people who want to know why God creates dinosaurs, we've talked about this already. Why would God create dinosaurs and let them die out? And then create mammoth animals and let them die out? Why? So we could have oil, gas, sand, biodeposits like marble. All those things happen because the earth decays and dies over long periods of time. You guys know if there was no decay over long periods of time, no sandy beaches. No granite marble tops in your little granite countertops in your new homes, right? None of that stuff, okay? If there's no decay over long periods of time and you take like soluble metals that could poison people but they become insoluble, you wouldn't have iron, copper, silver. So is it possible that God could create and do all these things and let the earth, the earth age over many, 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 many years when time doesn't matter to him? So that naturally we'd have all these things in our earth so that we could live and build these great kingdoms and kill each other? Possible. Next slide. Why did God create the universe and life on earth if he knew we would be subject to judgment? This is really a tough question, but it comes up in our study, and I think this is a good time to address it tonight. One of the reasons I want to address it tonight is we've been walking through so much science for eight weeks, I feel like we forgot like where the Bible is, so thankfully we've been reading some passages from the Bible. And I never want to supplant reading the Word. So this is, seems like a good break in the middle of a long series to actually go back to the basics. A lot of people have trouble with this one when, it's, when you start talking about God and the creation. And their trouble is, if God knew that we were going to sin, why go through all this? I mean, we know that the Lord sent Jesus so that he could die for our sins so we could go back to heaven. We know that. We're taught that. But why even go through it in the first place? Why create us in the first place? Anyone want to venture a guess? So he wasn't lonely, but he was a gift to who? Him or us? Okay. But if we didn't exist, would it really matter to give us a gift if we weren't there? Like he could just say... That's like, I want to give a gift to my unborn child, but if I just go, ah, maybe I just won't have him, I don't have to give him a gift. I think that's probably true. God could live on his own forever. So, so wait, wait, say that again. So there is a trinity, so... Okay, so God is a trinity, so he's relational. He could probably just hang out by himself in some sort of relationship, Julian. But why make us? He knew you were going to sin. Let's put it in context. Let's put it in context. Let's take the most secular guy you could think of who's arguing with you at the coffee shop that you frequent, right? Angela. Yes, he's out there like with a pea shooter just taking pot shots at the earth, right? I mean, let's, let's, hey, let's step out of our comfort church zone for a moment. Why did God create a billion Chinese people who are never going to hear about the gospel just so they can all go to hell? I mean, that's what I heard the, the most recent objection is somebody saying about, like, why they can't believe in God. How many Chinese people, how many Chinese Christians are there? How many? Give me a number. No, there's 70 million. Do you know there's 70 million Chinese Christians? Okay. But out of a billion and a half, that's like, like 10%. That's not even 10%. Actually, it's, by the way, that's more than there are in America, which is interesting. <laughs> they should be sending missionaries over here to save us. All right. But hey. Let's, let's, let's get down, like, what about a billion Hindus? 
I mean, the guys who have an objection to Christianity aren't gonna like walk through your science class with you like this. They're gonna go, they're gonna be sitting there saying, how do I believe in a God who says the only way I can go to heaven is to believe in him, and then he hides himself so I can't see him, and a billion Chinese people go to hell. Is that the God you believe in? Where's the love? Show it to me. Where's the love in a God who does that? It's like hide and seek, like, okay, I'm running behind the tree now. You can't find me. You think God's playing a game with you? It's fun. <laughs> Jolene's life, Jolene's religious experience has been boiled down to, it's fun so far. <laughs> Any, anyone else? <laughs> I totally agree with you, he has a plan. What's the plan? So he doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about the billion Chinese people. Okay, then what's the plan? Okay, it's so big. It's so big, he's locked it up in Area 51, no one's supposed to know about it. Jolene. Okay, I think that God, okay, God's created, created us because he wants us to live with him in the end, because he wants to be with us. And, and he, okay, he may not create things because the same reason why we create something, because we have an interest in it, because we want to be created. So it's like playing with an ant farm. You know, pretty much. Hey, do me a favor. Before you go out door to door evangelism, come talk to me. We got to work out the ant farm theology. <laughs> Eric. But I tell people like God has these characteristics. If you read throughout the whole Bible, God has characteristics of love, um, forgiveness, grace, but He also has characteristics of judgment. He also has characteristics of justice. So He allows a creation of these things so He can exercise all of His characteristics, which He cannot deny Himself. He has to carry out His characteristics of justice. So your God is a very selfish God who's like, hey man, I don't get to exercise my judgment, so I need to create a billion Chinese people so I can take my judgment out on them and send them to hell because then I'm a judge. That's true, but the guy who's smoking the hookah next to you at the coffee shop who's like, you know, some sort of Zen Buddhist probably is not gonna be convinced by that kind of answer, right? So, all right, let's, let's get some facts straight. Let's, let's get the bottom line. Did God know that man would fall? Okay, we know that God knew, but he, we all know that he also went ahead with it, right? Now. Let me propose this to you. I'm not saying this is truth. I'm just saying let me propose to you an answer and see if it rings true with you. I think the reason God creates man is he has a choice. It is his choice. He doesn't have to create us. But he decides, I want, I want, just my desire to create and be in a relationship with somebody who has certain characteristics. Now, you guys have identified a couple of them, free will and love. But how do you know unless you really try it out? And I think that's really what this earth is all about and what the creation really is. God creates this earth and puts man on it because he wants to really put together what some people call a just right environment where man's free will can actually be exercised and God can see in this laboratory of free will, if you want, who is really going to choose him and who is not. God knows from the beginning of time, if there is, because he created the beginning of time, and even before that, if I create man, he will fall. In fact, the Bible even gives us clues that he allowed the fall. You know that God is powerful enough against evil that he could stop Satan from coming into the garden if he wanted to, but he let him in. Not because it's God's plan to inflict us with evil, but it's God's plan to give us free will to see. Because he's thinking, you know what, if I'm really going to live with man forever in heaven, we have to go through this free will period and see who comes out on the other end.
I think there's a couple things we can say about that. You guys have already mentioned some. One is I do believe that people can look outside and understand there is a God they need to search for. Him. The Bible gives us clues that those who have not heard cannot be judged. That's a clue. I don't know that that's a truth. That's a clue. The Bible also gives us clues when it says that when people ask, why isn't Jesus come back yet to institute the end of the earth? It says that he is slow and patient so that none may perish. You know, Paul, when he was writing the epistles, was like convinced Jesus was coming back right away. He was telling people, don't get married, Jesus will be back soon. All right? No, it's, it's in the, you read it. It says, you know, those of you who can hold out, you know, if you can hold out, do it because the Lord will be here soon. You know, I may be wrong about a lot of things and the people in heaven are probably laughing at me right now, but when I get to laugh at Paul, I'd be like, <laughs> you know, like, you really biffed that one, buddy. But that's only because I was born, like, you know, way later. Okay? But here's the point. God is still being patient. He is still letting his word go out everywhere. And people have a choice. But we have a responsibility. And that's why we're doing this series. We're not doing this so we can just kind of like, well, go, wow, look how smart we are. We're learning about science and the Bible. We're doing this because the person smoking the hookah next to you in the coffee shop is asking you the question. And you got to be able to respond and defend Christianity in a way. Maybe that's what's going to convince them. The Holy Spirit does the convincing. But we can't look like idiots like we have been looking for so many years, like with a, I don't know, I don't know why you killed a billion Chinese people. We at least have to come up with something that might make the person think and say, hey, that's a reasoned, rational response. You know, because the world will say anything and we, if we don't respond, it sticks. They think they found an answer. They think that their intelligence has convinced them of something. That's kind of one of the things I want to show you that's real basic to why we're even studying this series. You want a little bit further basic? Let's just really say it out straight to make sure we understand it. God knew that we were going to fall, but he loved us so much that he actually let us fall so that we could be with him forever in heaven if we accepted him. For those of you who question why a loving God would send someone to hell, pick up the CD about it. It goes through the whole history of what God's relationship is with sin, why he's compelled against his will to hate sin so much that he can't be in his presence. It'll really change your thinking about it. If you're still struggling with a God who's wrathful enough to send someone to hell, by the time you finish that CD, I think you'll see it totally differently. And you'll understand more deeply who God is and how holy he is and how we don't even have the right to question why he would do it. But when you're done listening to that CD, you'll understand, oh, I get it now. He's so holy, I can't even fathom that a single sin attached to me would just annihilate me. You don't have a choice. All right, let's go one more slide. This is the one that's gonna trip up the most people who've probably lived in the church for a long time. Does belief in an old earth type theory mean that we are adopting evolution? No. This is one of those emotionally charged kind of like firecracker discussions where somebody says, well, if you believe the earth is billions of years old, you're just listening to your science books, so you must believe in evolution. No. Just as ridiculous as the young earth creationists are, in my opinion, about some of their science, you have to be honest and say that the evolutionists are about as ridiculous in theirs. We know scientifically that if you're gonna use a mutation theory to say that mutations occurred, that somehow took us from being this little amoeba in the water or whatever we were to become complex human beings, we know that out of every 10,000 mutations, only one of them drives the species to improvement, all the others drive the species to extinction. We know that if the universe is 14 billion years old, as most scientists think it is, that it's a couple hundred billion years too young to support evolutionary mathematical models. We know that even evolutionists now admit that the math doesn't work, so they have to come up with alternative universes or expanding, collapsing universes that keep opening and closing like an accordion. Just multiple big bangs that keep happening over and over and over until one day, boop, we showed up. 
no evidence of that. Here's one that confounds all evolutionists. If evolution is taking place, why since the dawn of mankind has there not been one single species added to the world after man? And this one actually proves the Bible closer than almost anything because God says in the Bible, I created all the species on the fifth day and then on the sixth day I created man and then I stopped creating. And we know in evolution, as they study all the species and the fossil records, when man appears on the scene, no more species. What's weird about that is for evolution to make mathematical sense, no matter how many billions of years you need, you have to have at least one species appearing almost every year. Why in the 50 or 60,000 years that man appears in the fossil record, no more species? Kind of eerie the way that the Bible hits that one and evolutionists are just struggling with it in the year 2005. Because evolution is predicting that we all kind of came from one after the other. And that's what's, that's what's the difficulty is. Even if you believe that, you know, forget all the missing links and all that, even if you just believe that, we just haven't had enough billions of years for it to really happen mathematically. And it just, it doesn't explain how suddenly there's just no speciation anymore. So I want to make it clear, and we may study more some of the problems with evolution if we want to spend time there, but we're not becoming evolutionists just by saying that the old earth theory is valid. Incidentally, the ones who have the biggest time are the young earth creationists because they hate evolution, but they have to explain how so many species came from the day of the ark till now. <laughs> they got a lot of explaining to do. You know, that ark must have been an amazing boat <laughs> to hold the number of species we have in our world. They just can't account for how that could have been done. All right, I'm throwing a lot at you, as always, but the point I'm trying to make tonight that I don't want you to lose sight of is this book is consistent with the universe. This book can authenticate itself. Someone with reasonable intelligence and even great intelligence can come to this book and start really looking at it and eventually come to the conclusion that they should get down on their hands and knees and accept Jesus Christ. Because this book alone among all holy books seems to do what no other book can do. And I think that's compelling evidence enough for us. Most of the people who will question the Bible and throw rocks at it don't have anywhere near the intelligence to answer their own questions, unfortunately. They can pose them, they can throw difficult questions at us, and yes, shame on us that we're not good enough to answer some of them. But if they were in your seat, they wouldn't be able to answer either. I think you could take stock in some of the witnesses we see that go ahead of us, like maybe a guy like Dr. Ross, who is intelligent enough to actually go through it and figure it out and tell his story in the way that he did. But the basic point of all, of course, is that all of this is vanity if it doesn't mean anything for us in our relationship with God. He loves us that much. He cares for us that much. He created this whole creation for us so that we can be with him forever. And he knew we were going to fall somehow. He knew that he had to send his son, and he still did it anyways. You know, it's almost like he knew that a few of us were gonna make it and still thought it was worth it. I love you so much, I'm gonna create the whole world, it's gonna grieve me to see the world turn its back on me, but I'll do it if I could just gain a few of you to be with me forever. That would be worth it. Let's pray, do a little bit of worship. Lord, I think we just have to be humble and just be plain and outright in the fact that we are making a lot of statements. And I pray that your spirit is guiding them because in truth, Lord, these are difficult questions to tackle. And they touch the very souls of who we are as people. We all have doubts, Lord. I thank you that you left these amazing clues in the Bible to remind us that no matter what our doubts might be, that there's concrete evidence that your word is true, that it stands, that it's real that it's not just a fantasy. It's not just a made up religion. It's not just a need for mankind to look to the stars and find an answer, but Lord, you actually came and intervened in human history. You created the world, you created us. You loved us so much that you didn't let us fall. You let us exercise our free will only to the point where we could 
show you whether we loved you or not and come back to you in eternity. And Lord, I, I admit these are hard things to fathom. I may have questions, Lord. I may always have questions. But the fact that you left us these clues to strengthen our belief and show us that we are on the right path and just to keep walking and just to persevere and be patient, that we would soon be with you in eternity and paradise, that's probably good enough for us, Lord. Lord, I thank you for attention and patience tonight and discipline of just going through this tough material. I thank you that we are taking on these vigorous workouts so that we can strengthen our muscles, Lord, when we talk to other people and when we exhibit defenses for the kingdom or just really just love to one another to show them that there are answers in Christianity. They should not overlook it so easily. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit work in each of our lives. Maybe the next week, Lord, we're going to encounter somebody who still has difficulties with this. And Lord, it's not going to be us who convince them. It's going to be your Holy Spirit. But I pray, Lord, just give us the calm, the patience, the love, the desire, the words to just be friends, dialogue with these people and show them that Christianity really is a lot more substantial than they might have expected. Pray all these things in your name.